Minnesota is home to two of the most livable cities, the most beautiful natural scenery, and one of the most industrious creative cultures in the world. In recent years, a thriving democracy of checks, balances, and an adversarial media have been replaced by political rivalries and corrupt officials more focused on delivering for donors and interest groups than honoring the public trust. Increasingly, local media seems to be in lockstep with this enterprise. In the spring of 2020, this system broke down and sent shockwaves throughout the country. Minnesotans Ask is not about politics. It is about the breakdown in transparency and accountability to the public. We are asking what can be done to bring sustainable balance back to Minnesota government. I am thrilled today, uh, we are thrilled today, that we have uh, Bill Doherty with us. Uh, Bill is the co-founder of Braver Angels, an organization previously known as Better Angels. And I can say that Bill is someone doing the really important work of generating honest, difficult conversations that we so need to have. Uh, and so I really am pleased to have you with us, uh, Bill. Thank you so much. Happy to be with you. So, Bill, tell us about uh, Braver Angels, uh, formerly known as Better Angels. You're one of the co-founders. What, what was the founding principle of, of, of your organization? Well, it was a founding opportunity that uh, three of us just seized on. I wish I could say there's some big uh, strategic plan. But uh, right after the 2016 presidential election, um, we decided to get three together, uh, 10 Hillary Clinton voters and 10 Donald Trump voters in Southwest Ohio for 13 hours over a weekend to see if people could come to understand each other beyond the stereotypes and find any common ground that they could. And um, so it was December of 2016 and it was very successful and that group didn't want to stop. They produced a report that flew back to Ohio. You know, we didn't have any money, cashed in a frequent flyer ticket again. And, and out of that came a national organization and we've now done 450 workshops um, and we have members in, 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 in 50 states. That's just phenomenal. And it all started with these 20 people Yep. Uh, I'm really curious about that. How, how did they get selected? How did you keep yeah. them from throwing things at each other? Uh, tell us about that first <laughs> no experience. <doubt>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't let anybody bring any fruit in the room, so they couldn't okay. get hurt of each other. Uh, well, um, it, it, my colleague, um, David Lapp from Southwest Ohio, South Lebanon, Ohio, recruited people. Uh, it's red country, conservative country. It wasn't, and he's conservative. It wasn't hard to recruit the reds, we call. Um, uh, and, uh, but he went to the Democratic County uh, uh, office, you know, the party office and recruited uh, some blues there. Uh, and uh, so we, we got the people together. They were from rural um, Southwest Ohio. And we asked them why they came. That's always the first question. Introduce yourself and why you came. And what they said was that they, they didn't want to continue with the rancor and the division that had happened with the campaign. They said, you know, we're, we're a small community. We have hospital to run. We've got roads to build. We have kids to educate. And we, we can't do it if we're at odds with each other the way we are. So we have to find a way to come back together. That's why, that's why they were there. Now, how, how 
we kept them from going at each other is that was my job. Okay, so my job was to design the process in which you could minimize what I call reactivity and maximize listening. And so that's what we did. And we created something there that we tuned over time. Uh, so it didn't have to be 13 hours. We have a three hour version and a seven hour version. And then we, we have skills workshops. We, so we now have like six different kinds of workshops. But the, the heart of this is that you create an environment where people can bring their best selves and where the, the, uh, the ground rules and the facilitation keep them from being their worst selves. Man, I could have used you that year. <laughs> I was uh, running the Libertarian Party's mm. booth at the State Fair here in Minnesota. Yeah. And I saw the worst of everybody that year. I bet you did. Well, Libertarians can be the enemy of all. <laughs> so so bill a cynic might say well this is a small group of folks right i mean you're you know this this is you just took the plum folks you yeah. know that had this uh, and you know most people are just not going to get together like this and and what would you respond to that how, how would you respond yeah to that? well one thing i'd say is that we we have in our workshops people from across the political spectrum so they're not all centrist nor is our goal to turn everybody into a moderate or a centrist you come in with strong beliefs you can leave with strong beliefs but you hopefully will understand the other side better and see their humanity so what our concern is the dehumanization our concern is not just people with you know strong left or right beliefs and we've had people uh, it, we've had it in, in a, um, a swing state in, in, uh, in, two, in 2017, we had uh, Trump's campaign manager, former campaign manager in it, okay? Um, we, we have Valerie mentioned Libertarian Party. We, we had the chair in Tennessee of the local county uh, Libertarian Party. Um, we've had strong pro-choice, strong pro-life people. Uh, so, uh, but the commonality is they're at least willing to come and listen. Um, and I think there are a lot of Americans like that. I mean, there are some on the extremes who do not want to listen. That's fine. But a lot of people do. If you create the environment where that can happen. So, Bill, one of the things that that is so important to me uh, to, to point out is this isn't a small organization anymore. As you said, you have 50 chapters. You've done 450 of these seminars. But you don't hear much about this in the media, of course. Uh, so there are folks that want this, um, but I want to give you a, a chance to pitch your product here and let people know where they can find you. But, but also just the, the, the fact that, uh, we're not getting the word out to the extent maybe we need to, that there are so many people both on the left and the right that really do want to come together. It's a big country, right? And so it takes a while to get known. Um, and we've had actually lots of media attention um, and, um, and that continues. And what I can say is that we're also now getting um, groups approaching us. Um, so I, I did a skills workshop for 30 members of the Minnesota legislature, a Braver Angel skills workshop. Okay, um, we did a, um, a what we call a red-blue workshop, uh, about eight and eight, for uh, the congressional staff members um, uh, of, um, of, of two members of Congress, okay? We, um, um, we have um, county commissioners uh, in the uh, in, uh, association uh, 
uh, has asked us to start doing some workshops with them. What, what I'm learning from political leaders is that a lot of their constituents are getting sick of, the, of all of the fighting that's going on. Um, when we asked those members of the legislature why they came to our workshop, a lot of them said they had been out door knocking in the previous campaign. And more than fiscal issues, more than anything else at that time, we didn't have COVID, of course, at, at that, more than anything else was divisiveness. And so they were hearing, and we had Braver Angels members uh, contact their members of the legislature and saying, there's this workshop coming up and I sure would admire you if you went. Nice. Um, we are now, we've now been approached by uh, some members of Congress about how to revise the congressional town hall, which is, those are pretty dysfunctional. So uh, I'm actually encouraged um, that, uh, that with the uptake that we're having and onward from there. So you have a very big plan uh, for immediately after this coming election. Uh, share with us what those Thank God somebody does. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's called With Malice Toward None. Uh, and it's based on this premise that this campaign is going to be very divisive and that the days after the election, whenever we know the results, <clears throat> are going to be a spiking of negativity uh, uh, towards one another in this country. That 60 million plus or minus people are going to be really upset with another 60 million, more or less, who made this horrible mistake uh, of voting for a president, somebody who's going to take, you know, take our country down the tubes. Um, and this is going to affect families. I mean, think about 2016, it affected families then. Friendships, uh, how we work together in our local communities. And this is more certain than... Um, than um, the models about the COVID virus and where that's gonna go. I mean, we know we're gonna be in trouble on November 4th and soon after. And so the idea behind With Malice Toward None is to um, work with, uh, working with religious communities, colleges and universities and civic organizations uh, to start the conversation in the fall about this question. How do you want to regard and treat your fellow Americans who vote the other way on November 3rd. How do you want to regard them and treat them? Do you want to regard and treat them with hostility, with contempt, um, with, uh, if you win, triumphalism, like just get out of the way and let us run the country? Uh, if you lose, do you want to bring them down in some way, you know, and, uh, and, and, uh, and are you gonna cut them off? Uh, and so, uh, and we're inviting people to pre-commit to attending activities after November 3rd in their community uh, to start to bring people together. Now, the first set of activities will be with people of like mind. In other words, the first set of activities, say in a religious congregation or at a college will be for those who voted the same way to come and get their feelings out um, and to uh, celebrate or be upset or be afraid because what I'm hearing from Reds is even if they win, they're gonna be afraid. Yep. They're going to be afraid of the reaction uh, of, of the blues. So get your feelings out among like-minded people and then see if you could come to a place where you uh, commit to our democracy enough that you want to start to connect with and work with people on the other side. Then the second gatherings will be Braver Angels workshops with people who 
voted differently. Bill, is there, if I have a question quick, uh, is there anything, any tips that you can give people of how they can start doing some of that work in their own networks now beforehand? Yeah, well, the, the big thing is to think in advance about how you're going to feel on November 4th or whenever this darn election is decided. But let's, yes. say, it's, let's say it's 11th, you know, it's, it's the 4th of November. And imagine you are happy with it. Uh, how do you want, how in terms of you as a member of this democracy and as somebody who perhaps sees yourself as a good human being, how do you want to uh, regard, think about, and, and interact with people on the other side? And if you lose, that's going to be even harder. How do you want to treat people in your life, in your community, in your college, in your religious congregation uh, who voted differently? So, so even planting that, and then if you, if you are uh, of the persuasion of braver angels, then you could say that I'm going to work hard to get my team a victory here. Uh, uh, however, I am not going to demonize the other side afterwards. I'm going to assume that we need people on both sides to run the country. So, Bill, uh, the first name of your organization, Better Angels, of course, comes from that magnificent speech that was given uh, by Abraham Lincoln. I believe it was his uh, second inaugural address, yeah. uh, talking about an appeal to the better angels in all of our in all of us, and that was an actual civil war where yes. almost a million people were killed. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet everything was done to bind the wounds and bring the country together. And we have not had an actual war, but in some ways it almost seems like it's as much or more of a challenge to bring this country together in 2020 as it was in 1864. Yes, we, we had then one huge dividing issue you know, that was, that was slavery. Um, uh, and now we have many, we have masks for crying out loud. You know, um, we, we have so much, unfortunately, so much of our public life has become symbolic of those divisions. Uh, there's a really interesting book by two political scientists called Prius or Pickup. Um, and uh, uh, if, if you see a, a, a Prius, you have a good chance to say that's a blue. If you see a pickup, a good chance to say a red. If you know what kind of beer people drink, uh, you you can have pretty good prediction of of uh, of their political affiliation. Uh, what what church they go to? I mean, we we are now quite quite in tribes. There were two big tribes in the Civil War, you know, South and North. But now within communities, there. Are, so we are uh, very divided, Super and divided. the most divided since the Civil War. Uh, and um, and I don't unfortunately rule out violence happening after this next election. Well, I think we need those better angels and yeah. greater angels, and and uh, uh, we certainly need that here in Minneapolis, and uh, specifically as it relates to the trauma that the city is is uh, currently in and specifically as it relates to the Minneapolis Police Department and the, the, the challenges of the community and the department itself. And I want to have a chance to have you speak to an initiative that I know you started long before the murder of George Floyd. Uh, 
tell us about what you've been doing with the Minneapolis Police Department. Well, this initiative started about the same time as, as uh, Brave Angels, although it's it's initiative I started is not connect with Brave Angels. Um, uh, and that is called the Police and Black Men Project, Police and Black Men Project in Minneapolis. Um, and the idea behind it was that um, we, well, we need uh, actual human encounters between police officers and members of the black community um, that we don't get when we have public forums and people get up to the microphone. Um, the, uh, the police officials behind the, the table um, kind of wear a mask, they have to. I mean, there's people up there, you know, uh, criticizing, attacking or supporting and, and they're in this very professional role. And, and then the community members um, may or may not feel heard. Uh, so this idea was, to uh, get together a small group. Uh, so it, it was six police officers, seven black men from the community uh, to uh, meet together for two hours every two weeks for at least a year before we decided what we wanted to do together. Because the other thing that happens in real life is you have a commission and they meet five times and then they produce a report or, you know, and then who knows what changes. But we move quickly without actually forging relationships. So. The, the goal here was to force relationships of trust uh, to promote uh, community safety and partnership between police and community, okay? And specifically the black community. Trust for the sake of safety uh, and partnership. Uh, and uh, what we did the first number of meetings was we just told stories. Uh, we talked about early experiences we each had with police officers, early experiences we had with black men, with white men. People talked about their fathers. Um, they told positive stories, negative stories, and everybody would get five minutes for, for a story. I set the timer. Nobody interrupts you. You get to tell your story and then people respond afterwards and then we move on to the next person. So we, we built relationships with each other and then we started to have the more difficult conversations, <clears throat> but using a process in which we could manage the 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 feelings in the room as we built trust and once we began to have the hard conversations about you know Jamar Clark and other kinds of uh, uh, Mr. Blevins uh, shooting happened when we were meeting uh, that we could hold together and have police officers share their views community members share their views uh, with we had two black officers and three white officers uh, we had everybody from a beat officer to a commander. Um, and in the in the, the community members, we had some professionals. We had some guys who had done uh, prison time. Um, uh, uh, you know, we, so we had quite a variety of folks, uh, all who all had different life experiences. Uh, and I can tell you, what we came to was something unexpected, um, and that was the sense that, in many ways, police officers and black men share the same stereotypes, uh, they are stereotyped in the same way. Um, they're violent, they're impulsive, um, they, um, uh, uh, they um, you know, they're uneducated, you know, the dumb cop. Uh, they have broken families. Uh, they're not to be trusted. Um, and, and the sense that, that there are larger societal conditions going back through the history of you know, racism and Jim Crow in which police officers have been used by people in power to control the black community. And the officers agreed on that. Uh, policing came out of slave patrols. 
That's where they started in this country. So all the officers in the room could agree that there is a heritage in policing that has been deeply unfair uh, to, to black folks. Okay. Um, and, and stop you there, Bill. The, yeah. no disagreement on that. No disagreement on that. So, so to all of those who might kind of pigeonhole law enforcement as having a certain political viewpoint, that would be a surprise to a lot of folks that in other words, they accepted and recognize the, essentially the, the systemic racism that was at the, the, the root of policing. That's not something yeah. they disagreed with. No, well, it took us a year to get there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't immediate, but they got well, probably enough time to build up the trust that right. they right. can actually have yeah, the conversation. Some of the black officers who are proud to be officers now and who believe that there have been improvements, okay, and are not dismissing all policing, but who were saying, hey, we have to accept this is the history, this is the legacy. And I want to say the all the offices were not super liberals, okay? We didn't discuss politics a whole lot. I did one-on-one. -on -one. I know we had Trump voting uh, officers in the group. So it's not like, you know, everybody was handpicked because they were super liberal. But we came to that consensus that, that, the, that there has been this history. And of course, um, th that th the it just doesn't go away. There, there are effects there. There, there are officers who have a warrior mentality, for example. Okay, uh, and that's you know that goes way back. And so, but with seeing each other in the same, in some way, in the same place. So you have a, a place like North Minneapolis, <clears throat> which is dealing with poverty, <clears throat> poor housing, um, it, it challenges educationally, health-wise, jobs, unemployment. Uh, it creates <clears throat> a cauldron <clears throat> in which <clears throat> you are going to have more crime. <clears throat> if you did, in Appalachia, you have the same cauldron. You have more crime with white folks. <clears throat> and these are societal conditions. They have a long history. And in, so you have more crime. <clears throat> Into that community, we, th we thrust police officers to take care of it. Okay. And then you're going to have negative encounters. And sometimes police officers are going to make a mistake. And sometimes there's some police officers who ought to not be in the, in the field. Okay. What, uh, what did you feel from that conversation that the, the black community members learned about law enforcement? Well, this is, this is, this is what's powerful when you get people together in deep conversation and relationship building, because the officers heard stories from men sitting across the table of really appalling of police practice, and they felt horrible about that. Okay, terrible about that. Um, and the the community members learn that you have officers who are not going out in the morning to find black men to arrest. They are responding to nine one one calls, usually from members of the black community. Okay, so so Bill, this is what. Uh, strikes me though as a challenge. Um, you develop these personal relationships in what you did, which is a wonderful thing to be doing. But people don't that you you had to create that environment. The environment in which people live is an environment um, in which they are socialized. Um, if you're a member of law enforcement, you're socialized to act in a certain way, mm -hmm. to think a certain way. Um, and the same potentially could be true of representatives in the black community. Mm -hmm. um, so someone perhaps in a black community might 
express empathy for law enforcement in the conversation you have, but would really be taking a risk in doing so uh, in, in, in their own community. Similarly, yeah. an officer would, <clears throat> right. would have those feelings in a private setting. How do yeah. you translate this to a public setting so it actually starts changing institutions? So what we have done is community presentations, <clears throat> radio it shows in the black community, uh, presentations together, officers and community members together um, saying those words, like there's a long history uh, of police being used to uh, buy people in power to control black folk. Uh, and that that's just real. <clears throat> and that goes back to, uh, to slave patrols. And I could tell you when a white officer says that, it's like, oh my goodness, <clears throat> okay. Uh, and so conversations in, in, in the black community with us together as a group who have come to care for each other, it's like a band of brothers now, okay. Um, and then in terms of policing, what we, what we have begun to do is be involved in the training of cadets. So becoming part of their training together, okay, uh, officers in our group and community members together um, uh, involved in training of the next generation of officers. Wonderful. Now, Bill, right now is an excruciating time for the city. Uh, but as someone who myself works with law enforcement, as I think you know, I'm a prosecutor, um, I do think about the officers themselves mm -hmm. in Minneapolis. Um, uh, it must be an incredibly challenging time. And I'm wondering if you have some insights on that based upon the work that you're still continuing to do. Yeah, it's, um, I can tell you, our group had an emergency meeting after George Floyd was killed. And at that point, the black community members were in deep distress and the officers in the group were there for them. The officers were appalled by what, what happened, what their fellow officer did. When we met two weeks after that, it was the officers who were um, uh, in trauma, if you will, as uh, so many in the community turned on them. And the black community members were there for them, were there for the officers, because they know these are good officers. They know that there are good, caring, dedicated police officers in Minneapolis who are being uh, stereotyped, just like happens to a black man when, you know, when a, a, a black man does something terrible, okay, and his face is in the paper. Uh, and then every bit of internalized racism in white people comes out that this, you know, black men are, are, are evil. Well, it's, it's the same thing with the police. And so um, what I've learned um, subsequently is that, that the officers are, A, ashamed of what their colleague did. They can't justify it in any way. It's not how they were trained. Um, and that they are getting from the community and actually more from the white community than the black community, um, insults, disparagement, ridicule. And it's not just them, their spouses are getting this, their kids are getting this. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, and they're deeply demoralized. And, and I, I led a, you know, a support group, co-led a support group uh, for uh, black officers in Minneapolis. Um, who they're getting from everywhere uh, because they're they wear blue uniforms. They're getting all of the disparagement that you know you're a pig, you know. Uh, and then they're a member of the black community, 
and they're being told, you know, you sold out, uh, you know, you're part of the enemy. Uh, not not 100%, of course, but they're getting it from everywhere, including family members. So, Bill, you said that the, the, the black members of the community were there for the officers. Uh, uh, again, in that setting, um, how does that, how does that translate? Because none, you're not seeing that in my view. Uh, you, we're at a point where the mere statement that there are a lot of good police officers, you'll get ridiculed. You, you will get, if I go on social media tonight and do that, yeah. people accuse me of, of, of not having a clue. Yeah. And, and of being blind to what's going on. Yeah. Um, how do we tackle that? Because we all know there are good officers, of yeah. course. Well, what, what they're, what they're, you they're can't say it now. You, can't even say that. You, you notice, Paul, I began by saying that there has been a history of structural racism. You know, it, it, the way I didn't even say racism, I said it this way the police have been used. To, to control and suppress black people going back since slavery, okay? Uh, and, and now I'm not saying it's, it's the same as it was during Jim Crow and slavery, but there is that history there, okay? It just doesn't go away overnight. I began with the systemic issue. <clears throat> and then later on, you asked me how these officers, what they're like individually and how they're suffering. What I've learned, for, this is the Braver Angels learning, that when you're talking to blues, you can't begin with the individual level. You can't begin with, well, there are good officers. Uh, because that's heard was, well, they're, they're good, must be good Gestapo guys too, in the, you know, Hitler's. Not. And that you are, <clears throat> you are clueless about the systemic and structural issues. Uh, so in talking to blues, you have to lead with the systemic structural issues. You have to believe them, okay? You, it's not like you make it up. But, <clears throat> and once, once blues get know that you understand that there's a big system here and that there's been a culture of warrior police officers okay um <clears throat> and you look at chief rondo this stuff has to change this is not just a couple of bad eggs here okay uh so now we're we're with you're nodding okay and you're with me on this then i can say that if we stereotype every member of the police department as a bad actor uh, as an evil guy, we are going to destroy a, a, an essential institution in our society. This would be like saying there are, there are uh, that, that there's so many problems in the educational system. You know what we should do? Because we have the biggest edu educational disparities. We should say the whole system is racist and every teacher is participating in that <clears throat> and shut it down. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's going to help. And nobody, by the way, that seems to be where we're at. These right, days. right. And, and the thing is, who in the world is going to go into policing if that it is a reviled profession? Nobody. If we did that to teachers, nobody would go into teaching. If if we decided, and you know, there's reason to believe in medicine. Look at the history of medicine. There's there's issues, right? The systemic and the racial issues everywhere in our society. If we revile every member of that profession, what have we accomplished? Because nobody of a good heart will go into it. So it seems to me a lot of this bill comes down to folks looking in the mirror rather than looking outward. In other words, uh, if, if you're a white person in this society, you may not be a law enforcement officer, 
but you've benefited perhaps, whether intentionally or otherwise, from all sorts of institutions. Uh, and it just so happens that the law enforcement folks are on the front lines here. Um, but don't we need to get to a place where we all recognize the historical perspective, but look more at how we can change um, uh, as a starting point rather than how others can change? It's a both end. <clears throat> we need to hold on to the historical, the systemic, and we need to hold on to the personal. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> what happens is uh, Reds, conservatives focus on the personal in mm -hmm. terms of behavior change. People should stop committing crimes. Nobody's making, just because you've been a victim of oppression, that doesn't give you license to go rob people, okay? And members of the black community agree on that, right? Uh, so what Reds do is emphasize behavior um, uh, and personal responsibility, um, uh, internal cultural issues in a community, uh, and Reds emphasize the structure and the systems. Uh, and here's the thing. Both, both sides are true. Both are accurate. Um, and what I'm committed to is having a both-end conversation. Um, all of my projects with, with African-American men, which now go back 18 years, three different projects with youth, with fathers, with black men in the community dealing with police, all of those have been about what I call agency, about being an actor, not just a reactor, uh, of, of understanding that there, there is racism and systemic uh, issues, and then taking constructive action. Um, uh, th that's ennobling and empowering for people. And at the same time, we need structural changes. We need to empower um, people like Chief Rondo uh, to be able to really manage a department and change a culture. And that has to be systemic. The challenge is how do we do the personal uh, and the systemic at the same time in the same conversation? So Bill, you may know, cause we've had interactions with each other uh, as part of No Labels Minnesota, which I'm a part of. And, and so at some point the, the conversation has to be, how do we change our politics to reflect this I, I i think you know you've said and you're we're agreeing that this is absolutely what needs to happen um but is there any guarantee that our politics will reflect any of this how, how do you operationalize this and I, I know you're not running for office anytime soon. perhaps you are but but how do you how do you actually operationalize this so we start seeing it in our elected officials we start seeing it in the conversation because it doesn't seem like we're seeing that in the co political conversation in Minneapolis right now. No, no. no. And, and my approach to it in terms of what the world that I'm in is how do we begin to have those conversations? So I'll give you a positive example. We we've developed a one-to-one black-white conversation, two one-hour conversations. <clears throat> that are not like other conversations where the black person is supposed to explain racism to the white person, okay? That gets really tiring uh, for them. Uh, and, um, uh, and so this is people coming together as equals to get to know each other, uh, to talk about what, they're, uh, what, what feels good about the, the kind of ethnic or racial group they come from, what's difficult about it, how they'd like to change society so that all of our children have a chance for successful, flourishing lives. I mean, that, that's the outline of that, okay? And then what can we do individually and together? Coming together, a, a black and white, one-to-one, -one, no moderator, no facilitator, just two people, online or in person. <clears throat> so um, I, I got a, 
message from a, a member of a Republican member of the state legislature who wants to do one of those conversations. And so we're going to set that up. <clears throat> uh, and so she's going to actually be meeting with a black guy from the Police and Black Men Project, a community member. Uh, and I'm confident that's going to go really well. <clears throat> yeah. well I, and the other thing we've set up, and I'm hoping to this will be piloted before long. I don't know if, where, but I'm in conversations. A police officer and a black man from the community in a one-to-one -one conversation coming together as two equal human beings. So that's that's the here's my image of what's happened with police black community relations since since George Floyd. It's like the 9/11 event. The twin towers fell down, yeah. and while systemic change is getting worked on, I want to also rebuild brick by brick. And I think even in our political world, we need bigger change, but we need brick by brick building relationships. Yeah, are there any, um, do you do any kind of follow-up with the people after their one-on-one -on -one, where they all, where they both kind of report their yeah, experience we, we, back we, to you? Yes, that's right. We do that follow-up. Okay. Um, and um, and we, we are looking for resources where it's, nonprofit without much money. Uh, right. but we're, we're attracting the interest of researchers and others uh, about doing longer term follow ups. And, and here's what I my dream about these one to ones <clears throat> is that people would then form a network uh, of right. folks who have had this experience, they, they have more one on ones. Um, and, uh, and that, and see, we're asking everybody, what do you want to change individually? What could we change together? We're collecting all of that. This is part of yeah. what they report out. And I'd love to get, including from the police and black men, I'd love to get bubbling up of here's some stuff we could do. Right. Um, and form yeah, a I network. I think they would have come up with some great ideas. Yes. And then start start working on it and look for some resources to support it. So that's that's the, the longer term strategy. Yeah. So, so uh, Bill, uh, let me be blunt. This is great what you're doing. Uh, yeah. But some might say, what difference does it make? Because mm -hmm. when people get in a group, they're awful. You know, sure, they can, they can, you know, in their own individual groups, uh, you know, they might even accept uh, a person of a different political persuasion because mm -hmm. they get to know them, but, but they, but we don't live in that kind of society. And, and uh, so is, does any of this make a difference if we don't mm -hmm. get at the group mentality that seems to be driving things? Yeah, there's a there's a book, a famous book by um, a, um, a theologian um, whose name now escapes me, uh, but it will come to me, uh, called A Moral Man and Immoral Society. Um, and it's about how the further up you go from the individual to the small group, up to the local, up to the national and so on, um, the, the, the less, the, the more amoral groups become okay um so you can have you know church-going people who in their civic roles uh do really bad things um and um, um and so that's why the strategy i'm talking about isn't necessarily the strategy uh, for getting a bill through congress okay so um and so but my view of social change is that we need bottom up and top down at the same time. Uh, because uh, without working on those relationships at the local level uh, and creating 
uh, 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 accentuating a value of mutual respect and cooperation for the common good. There is little pressure on people in politics to change what they're doing. Um, uh, and so it, it's, it, there's, uh, it's, and we're, we're starting to get that. I, I just got an email yesterday from a foundation that is talking with members of Congress about uh, uh, Braver Angels doing workshops for members of Congress. And we'll see where that comes, but okay. Um, I'm not naive enough to think we're gonna change everything there, but I also believe that people in power one of the ways to stay in power is to pay attention to what people are thinking and feeling on the ground. And if people are getting fed up with some of this stuff, and if Congress has, you know, lower, um, uh, what do you call approval ratings, then, you know, almost then, um, you know, serial killers, right? I mean, uh, they're going to have some incentive to make some changes. If they so want one to of the, keep their seats. Absolutely. Yeah. So, exactly. So but but one of the things there's been a lot of writing and talking about is is uh, the breakdown in kind of the the civic infrastructure. Yes. You know whether it's the Kiwanis Club or the yes. Chamber of Commerce or churches themselves, yes. where you had people with different backgrounds uh, mixing. Uh, it, we can't do that at a national level, no matter what mm -hmm. we do with members right. of Congress. Right. But we don't even have it at a local level, and I'm not even talking about the politics of things. I'm sure. just talking about uh, people are, uh, it seems people are not the social animals. They're not that they once were. Yeah. And can we solve any of this unless we tackle that, unless people actually start working together in their own local communities, getting to know each other? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's what Braver Angels is. Um, at all of our leadership, by the way, is half red, half blue. All our states have red and blue coordinators, our board. And so building building an intentional community with around the value of difference. See, the, the most natural way to build a, a, a community is around affiliation and similarity. Um, in, in this era, and those are declining, as you said, um, you know, they, they've been declining for 40 years, uh, the civic associations. And so we can't just wish them back we have to find new ways uh, to tackle civic problems, uh, and um, and Braver Angels is, is one example, and there are others. There are others doing it. So, I'm always of the light a candle rather than curse the darkness uh, model. And there are many factors that have gotten us to where we are now, and and we need new approaches that honor and respect uh, political and values differences, honor and respect them rather than ignoring them. Or, or denigrating those. And it seems one of the things that's so critical here too is the power of a story. Mm -hmm. when, when you get to know someone and you hear their stories, yeah. Yeah. That, that seems to be at the heart of this. Because once I know your story, 99 times out of 100, some of that story is going to resonate with me. Yes, yes. It humanizes you. Yes. So when we, when we brought congressional staff members uh, together, and by the way, they, they're staff members of Representative Phillips and Representative Stauber, um, uh, you know, for a, a Democrat and Republican uh, from Minnesota. Um, uh, the first question we asked them was, what life experiences have influenced your approach to public policy and politics? What life experiences? And so they came together and everybody got a few minutes to take some notes. Then everybody got five minutes. 
uninterrupted, tell your story. And we walked, we went around the room. It was so striking. And I'll give you an example, and this doesn't break anybody's confidentiality. Uh, it so happened in the small group I was in, there were a number of people for whom religious orientations got them into the political realm. Again, these are staffers of, of members of Congress. And, and by happenstance, a majority in that group were, had Catholic origins. And so Catholic social justice teaching and make a difference in the world was part of the origin story. And then those who were more interested in abortion uh, and, and, and pro-life as an issue moved more Republican. Those who were more interested in poverty, uh, low-income folks, they moved more Democrat. But the root system was similar. And they discovered that mm. with each other. Okay, because it's easy for reds to think oh, we're the religious ones and these blues are a bunch of seculars, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's easy for blues to think that these conservatives, they, you know, if they're, if they're pro-life, they, they want to control women, right? And, and, uh, uh, and, and whoa, but they came from a similar root system and because of a different interest area, they took different paths. Right, but you know, Bill, but you know, there's a whole industry, the politics industry, that wants to do everything it can for folks that are red and blue not to share those stories. Yeah, that's right. So when you get to Congress, as I understand it, one series of buses of Democrats goes in one direction and you're not even inside the Congress yet. Mm -hmm. and, and your caucus leader pulls you away. So you might hear stories <laughs> from, you know, similarly at the state Capitol here. Uh, so our whole system Yes, uh, is premised on dehumanizing the other side. We have yes. an entire industry that's premised on. That's what you're taking on here. And, and we have to name what you're saying. And we have to say that is deeply wrong uh, and it's bad for our democracy. And we have to take that on. Yeah. Well, Bill, you're doing phenomenal work and it's just been a pleasure to talk to you. But I do want to give you a chance because I know you can be a member uh, of Brave yeah. Angels. I'm one myself. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, so uh, if folks are moved by what you're saying and they want to be involved, what do they need to do? Uh, they need to uh, Google Braver Angels, uh, which uh, we're the only organization called Braver Angels, <laughs> um, and uh, learn about us. Um, it, membership is $12 a year. We encourage people to contribute more if, if they can, but we want to make it a low bar of entry. Um, and there are uh, in this, uh, we, our workshops now are, are coming online as well as face-to-face. -face. I'd like to particularly note now our very active debate series. We have debates, national debates every week. We've got five or 600 people going on debates and we're tackling the most difficult issues like this week, reparations for black folks. We, wow. we, we, we took on uh, defunding police um, um, you know, so, uh, and it's, it's a braver angels kind of thing, a respectful conversation, a debate, um, uh, with, with, with a chair and, uh, uh, and, and people do their thing. So that's like, you know, that's a ready thing for people to join. We're creating a community of people who are depolarizers, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and it's great fun to be part of it. So braver angels, we'd love to have you join us, uh, and, and help grow this movement. Depolarizers, that's the word for the day. It is. Uh -huh. and, and, it, and it really is one that's not just a political movement. It's a, we need that. It's a social down. movement. 
uh, absolutely. And, and uh, you're planting these seeds everywhere, Bill, at this. And, and uh, we all have to be doing that work. Uh, so it's just been great to have you with us. Thank and you a so great much. opportunity. Thank you so much. A great opportunity for me. Love talking to both of you. Okay, Thank wonderful. You. Good luck with your work and, and check back with us, uh, regardless how the election turns out, uh, <laughs> with, with your with your post-election efforts. Yes. I think that's going to be really important. Right. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Okay. Okay.